Hi, everybody. It's Aaron Solomon. Welcome to the Next Level Podcast. We're deep into season two. It's hard to believe we didn't get canceled yet. We probably didn't get canceled because it's our own podcast. So we've got an, actually an awesome guest with us today. Now, I'm going to probably badly mispronounce, mispronounce his last name, but I'm going to give it a shot. We've got Dan Magnashevsky with us. And Dan is from Buffalo. He's the co-founder and chief technical officer of an amazing company that we're going to talk about today called ACV Auctions. He's also, if I'm not mistaken, an adjunct professor or a former adjunct professor, one of the two, he'll tell us, at uh, the University of Buffalo. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And yeah, you, you nailed the pronunciation of the last name. So kudos That's to you. That's good. That, thanks. Uh, thanks very much. Well, I mean, I know, you know, yeah, I think I, I, I tried to do the best that I could with it. So yeah. the first time we met, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in real life, not in Twitter life, was uh, Startup Weekend Buffalo several years ago, a lot of years ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I'm not an adjunct professor. I'm just uh, a, a guy who shows up to the university to give talks. So much like That's the cool. podcast, I, not getting canceled, I, I'm allowed to just Kind of show up and talk about things without needing a, an advanced degree so works out nice that's really good i actually am an adjunct professor in business school and i think they would just prefer if i just showed up once in a while and talked about stuff and didn't actually have to give them marks <laughs> yeah but nonetheless um so i'm going to tell you something right off the bat that upsets me uh -oh. because i think you'll be able to relate to this so acv auctions the company that you co-founded recently IPO'd. And we're not going to get into too much depth about the IPO because I, there's probably lots of rules around what you can say and can't say. But nonetheless, this is a company that you guys built from scratch. I remember when you were founding ACV Auctions. So I want you to tell us in a second what ACV Auctions does. But nonetheless, ACV IPOs, and while it has been a national story, it's had unbelievable legs in Buffalo. And here's what I'm upset about. What I'm upset about is, come on, some kid in Silicon Valley gets an idea and the whole world is like a kid in Silicon Valley has an idea. But somebody in Buffalo, in Cleveland, in Pittsburgh, I had a guest on, I just recorded a podcast yesterday with an entrepreneur in El Paso. These cities, it doesn't really resonate so much. How are we going to fix that? I know ACV is going to fix it, but how are we going to fix that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... Um... It's kind of the mentality of the non, you know, Silicon Valley, New York cities of the world, uh, where there is a bit of a, an echo chamber going on there. And, um, you know, for us, what we want, you know, what we set out to do and what I think a lot of these other cities are doing is more and more startups are popping up across, you know, what I guess we could call it, you know, other cities um, from the, from kind of the two main ones, at least here in the U.S. is, um, you know, these are real businesses, you know, what, what we've run into is age old industries that are massive, that aren't sexy. And nope. therefore Silicon Valley, New York city, they, they're not even thinking about, you know, and, and they wouldn't even know that these problems exist, you know, and a lot of times used to joke, you know, it's trying to solve like the person in San Francisco problem of like, where is the best pour over coffee shop that also, you know, plays like the genre of music. I, you know, 
you know, these types. Wait, but heaven forbid I should walk a block there because I need to get a scooter. Right, exactly. So we can solve that that whole walking problem that needs to be solved. So, um, <laughs> so so yeah. I mean, I think it. I think for a while, in you know, I, I think maybe they're starting to come around a little bit, but you know, they're just in these bubbles where they're trying to solve these problems that, at the end of the day, it's you know, are these really problems or is it just a slight inconvenience? Um, whereas, you know, and then they can raise, you know millions or tens of millions of dollars on their idea because they used to work at Google. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where for us, you know, the, you know, starting in Buffalo, New York, um, we went and looked at an industry that was massive and we knew there was a real problem because, you know, my, my dad was in the automotive, uh, had a car dealership and stuff like that. My co-founder did as well. And they knew there was this problem and they knew, you know, there was these two big, um, you know, incumbents that were not motivated to change and they were making great money doing it. Um, a bit like the mafia, you know, it's, uh, if you want to, if you want to run your business, you gotta, you gotta go through them. So, you know, it's a really interesting, you know, kind of thing that I think we need to do that. And we need to understand how are we going to make money, uh, right. You know, right out of the gate, the first car we sold, we, we made money on, we had a, you know, really good revenue model and it wasn't something that we had to, Kind of hope we get x million users so then we can start monetizing them it was really around how are we providing a service that people will pay for that is making their lives better and easier and super quickly for everybody so they understand acv is a car auction business yeah so we started as a a, a digital marketplace for for uh really dealer to dealer so the wholesale car market uh, you know, we, we, we didn't do consumer, but, you know, it's a massive industry. You know, there's 21 million vehicles in the U.S. that get transacted dealer to dealer. So anytime you go and trade in your vehicle, um, that dealership may or may not uh, want to keep it and sell it on their used car lot. Uh, but a lot of times they just want to get rid of that vehicle. And, you know, so what they traditionally would do would, would be to call up a transporter ship it to a physical auction that could be 50 miles away, could be 300 miles away. And they would, it would then sit on a parking lot for a week. And then once a week, everyone would drive down to these physical locations, stand around outside, whether it was snowing or, you know, the hottest day of the summer. And you stand around and drive through basically a, a little garage where you have 30 to maybe 60 seconds if you're lucky to bid on a vehicle. Uh, and you've was... been to these auctions, right? Yeah, yeah. I have yeah, too. Yeah. I used to go to an auction. I used to live in Southern Pennsylvania. I used to go to an auction on the Mason-Dixon line. That was one of the trippiest things you could ever see. It was semi-open <laughs> to the public. So everything from bluegrass bands to really good barbecue to, as you said, a range of cars from, wow, if I could get this car or a dealer could get this car, it would be a great deal to this car is never, ever going to start. And these are coming through and multiple bays by the minute. It's really a laborious and um, problem-ridden process, which yeah. you fixed. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times too, you, there, there may be three cars you want to buy and they're all running literally at the same time in lanes one, five, and 10, right? How, how are you bidding on that? So then you got to try to figure out which one you are going to bid on. 
Um, so yeah, super labor intensive. Dealers are just not on their lots selling new cars to re, you know to consumers, which is how they make their money. And yeah, you know these vehicles are all used, damaged goods uh, at some level. So it's uh, you know you then also need to try to make sure you're not uh, you know you're buying it for the right price and not buying something that needs too much work that's going to you know cause you to lose money on it. So it was about six years ago, and you guys won 43 North. So for those who don't know 43 North, it, it, I've been involved in 43 North as well. It's amazing. I wish every city had a 43 North, at least with the way 43 North began. So it was a Buffalo organization that did an annual business plan competition, and anybody could enter. Like there were companies from, that entered from Toronto, which is nearby Buffalo, where I used to live, and all over the area. And you guys won that, and there were like over 10,000 companies uh, in the competition and you got a million dollar prize. Yep. Yeah. That's it, very cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it was, yeah, it's a, it is a great program, you know, and some of the other, you know, so the non first place gets, I think they changed it up a little bit, half a million dollars and, and it is a, you know, an investment. So they're kind of, it's kind of this way of um, it's kind of a, fu a fund, but also, you know, kind of a competition. So it's, it's an interesting model for sure. And, yeah, I mean, it was great for us. It was, you know, a million dollars at a time where, um, you know, we had just raised a million dollars uh, in a seed round, mainly people local in Buffalo, uh, which was a pretty good feat at that time. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was a great competition. You go through and, you know, you do your, it's kind of a Shark Tank style pitch at the end as they kind of whittle the teams down. And uh, yeah, it was a great injection of capital at a time when we were just, you know, we were just starting to grow and scale into different markets. And the thing that I love the most about competitions like 43 North is that if you look at a city the size of Buffalo, and like, you know, I'm a massive Buffalo fan, not just the football team, but it's such a great city. I've spent so much time there, is that if you win 43 North or make it really deep into the competition, it starts to energize the business community around the potential of your startup to do exactly what ACV auctions did. Because honestly, that's the goal for 43 North is that every winner of the competition becomes a huge win and a huge exit. But it gets a lot of attention that otherwise a company in a city Buffalo size wouldn't have. Yeah. And I used to get, you know, right after we were, and maybe it was the first year of 43 North as well, but definitely after we went through it, I was getting tons of, you know, feedback from people I knew on the West Coast and New York City and elsewhere just around and they were from Buffalo and just how excited they were to see this type of thing happening in Buffalo. Um, you know, so it was, it was a really, I think a really great just PR, you know, outside of the investment and building companies and bringing people in. It's a great PR thing for someone like Buffalo who, you know, doesn't have the PR and showing that we are trying to do, you know, innovative things around bringing companies here and really helping foster startups and for people who are looking to start their own companies and didn't know where to go and, you know, had trouble finding capital and the mentors and all that. It's an, it's this great framework that allows that, that really allows to kind of make Buffalo an option, you know, which is great. And more and more companies, again, I'm not, I don't want to sound preachy, but I will be preachy. And again, it's not just Buffalo, but it's the Buffaloes of the country and the Buffaloes of the world. I'm sorry, but if I were today to do another startup in my advanced years, which I very, very, very well may one day, 
Um, there's no way I would want to be in a Silicon Valley or in a New York City. I would definitely want to be in a city like Buffalo where, you know, it's, it's just different. Nonetheless, here's the yeah. thing. Back to your origin story. So there's two things I think that made you perfect for being a co-founder of this. The first obviously is your deep technical background, but the second thing is I remember that you're a massive Porsche fan. I am, yes. And, and I remember a couple of times living in Germany that I would say, hey, listen, you wouldn't believe all the Porsches on the road here in <laughs> Berlin. Like there are parts of town where it's only Porsche on the yeah. road. Um, so obviously when it came to being involved in a car startup, you know, this kind of blurred the line between work and passion for you, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had a uh, 1980 Porsche 928 9, uh, that a barn find around here in Buffalo. Um, it was Euro edition, super rare target interior. And, you know, I was looking to do something a little different, uh, you know, just kind of outside of my, my day job and do something with my hands that wasn't typing on a keyboard. And uh, so I was looking to, it wasn't running, tried to restore it. So I was involved, uh, you know, with that, got it running and going through that process of how do you understand the condition of, of a vehicle and how do you then, you know, look to fix something when, you know, you can't go into a manual and say, hey, you know, it's not starting. Like there's no manual for that. And then you have all the kind of different questions. So I was actually kind of working on, an idea around that in terms of how you can repair and restore vehicles and adding some intelligence as opposed to going through, you know, 20,000 different, uh, you know, message boards on the internet and trying to figure it out. So, so for me, it was, yeah, I, I was already kind of interested in the space. As I mentioned, my dad was a used car dealer, uh, kind of as a side hobby. So I had done that for a while, you know, I'd been around that for a while and he was going to auctions. Um, his day job was actually uh, an inspector, insurance, or you know, claims inspector for Allstate. So, in addition to that, he was always going through and um, inspecting cars, which at the time didn't didn't seem like it would be a a relevant thing. But as kind of as ACV grew, inspections became a, a big piece of what we do. Um, so, yeah, it was all that kind of stuff. And you know, when I met Joe, uh, one of my co-founders. Who had this idea and he's just like i just had yeah you know, I, I got a push notification anytime a dealer took a trade in and they didn't want it or they want to know what they can get for it can i just get a push notification with a bunch of photos you know some of the details on it i'd i'd bid on that you know why am i traveling 500 miles one way 200 miles the next day 300 miles the next day going and standing around and doing this so you know, as he, as he was talking through it, I'm like, yeah, that makes total sense. I could build that. And we kind of kicked it off from there and just trying to figure out what this thing would be and, you know, what, what, what our MVP was going to look like and started talking to some customers. And uh, yeah, it was kind of, kind of kicked off from there. I think that's obvious. That's great advice for, you know, people who might be listening who are still in school or just starting their career because, you know, there's not going to be a hard break during your life between your work and the rest of your life. It's great if you can do something like, I don't know, work out, play a sport that turns your mind off your work a little bit, but you get to think about cars all the time. 
you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about you is you're part of my, my company's family, Mission Watch Company. You have one of our watches. I do. And this was like a lifelong passion of mine, being a watch guy. And I don't mind all the work that comes along with having a watch company because I'm just thinking about watches. So when I'm looking at what other companies are doing and I respect and love what other companies are making, it's, you know, that research is fun. So is that work time? Is it off time? I know for you thinking about cars is, is the exact same thing. And that I think is great advice for anybody thinking I'm going to build something successful because you're going to be in that mode, you know, pretty much all of your waking hours. Yeah. And I, I think it's really good to, to try and do different things or pick up different hobbies that are outside of sure. um, maybe the core of what, what you're interested in, because I think, and especially as a software engineer, you kind of look at everything and try to ask what, what, why are we doing it this way in 2021, 2020, whenever? And you try to almost, how, how do you automate this? How do you improve this process? How do you add more intelligence to it? So, you know, for me, yeah, just going and turning wrenches a little bit, I was like, I can't believe how hard it is to do this thing. And you, you can be surprised at these opportunities that are out there in areas you never would have expected or never would have thought to look had you not just kind of cottywampled down this uh, this path. Totally. So listen, for people who don't know what an IPO is, because not everybody listens to the podcast entrepreneur, some people have legal practices, and I look at our analytics all the time. We also have people listening from all over the world. So explain briefly, if you can, what an IPO is, and more importantly, what an IPO can do for a company like ACV. Like, why would a company like yours at this point decide to do an IPO? Sure. Yeah. So for us, and I think in any company's path, it's you can kind of you can take two paths. I think, and I think there's the the bootstrapping model where you you know you're going to grow more organically. It's going to be a little slower to to kind of get that critical mass, but you can you know you retain your ownership of the company, and um, you know you don't you're not kind of bringing in investors. Uh, to maybe steer you in a way that you're nervous you're going to get steered. So there's that method, and then there's kind of the the venture approach. And you know, for us early on, we knew, in, you know, this is a winner take all, winner take most type market. And um, we knew there's big competitors with super deep pockets. And you know, for us, it was like, hey, we we know we're going to need to raise venture capital. Uh, we didn't think we'd need to raise as much as we ended up, you know, as we were starting out, but, you know, as time went on, we, you know, we started bringing on some, some of the best investors you can get access to. And we raised about $350 million in venture capital over the years. And, um, you know, it really helped us grow fast. And the good thing, you know, there's a lot of good with that. Um, what, what happens when you go down that path though, is that at some point, those investors have their own investors that, and the only reason they're investing, it's not because they like you, it's, or just that they like you, um, but you know, they have to show a return on investors. So to the investors. So for any venture backed companies, there needs to be some type of liquidity event. And that's either another company's buying you. Uh, and the other path is really around um, an IPO. Right. And there's a bunch of different ways of kind of going public now, whether it's direct listing or a bunch of SPACs all over the place now. 
But going going the IPO route, uh, basically what that does is it it you know it's just like any other fundraising round. But at that point, then it opens up to everyone that can buy. So you, you know as as you go through, you raise you know you can raise a bunch of capital, and now you have this currency. And, and really, some of the other beauty of it is that you now have a more liquid currency, which is your stock. If if you're looking to go do an acquisition or things like that, uh, which is a little, a little more expensive if you're a private company and you're trying to acquire a company and you don't really want to dilute your private stock down anymore, and it just becomes a little, little trickier. So, so for companies, it's hey, we're gonna we're gonna list on on one of the exchanges, we're gonna go public, we'll raise a bunch of money at that initial public offering, and now what we have this currency that we can use to uh, attract talent uh, and attract potential acquisitions. It makes perfect sense. And one of the things that I found interesting about your IPO from kind of, you know, my lens, which is the brand lens, the social media lens, and I guess for lack of a better term, the marketing lens, is that often when there are, when there are tech IPOs, it, there's a lot of vitriol around it. People kind of like want to hate the company. And at least I haven't seen anything. I mean, all the, the stuff that I see about ACV auctions, not just local stuff from Buffalo, is people love the company. And that's great. And I think that speaks to the culture that you guys set within the company. And, you know, uh, you know, it is a tech company, but I think people also love cars. I, I, and, and the other thing that you said that made perfect sense, I remember this line from this, the movie startup.com, I think it was 2001. An investor, I think it was Highland Capital, said to the entrepreneurs that, listen, in your market, there's going to be three people. One of them is going to get half the market. The other two are going to share the other half. Like, who do you want to be? And that's exactly what you said. And it takes money to get to that point. Yep. Yeah. And, and we've, we found, you know, we, we had a couple competitors early on um, that were going down that bootstrapping path. And you know what I see a lot of I mentor a bunch of other startups as well, so I've seen this a couple times play out, where you try to, you know, you're you're trying to build your core company, but you're trying to bring in some more money while you're trying to do that. So then you start doing something that's a little tangential to what you're doing to bring in a pay, you know, to bring in some capital to fund the core thing, and then you end up getting too distracted and you built these five different things that. You know, you built to make money, but you didn't build it with that product vision of all of this is coming together. Um, you know, and so I think that's you know kind of another, another, you know, gotcha on the bootstrapping when you're trying to grow that fast, and you know, it, it, it's definitely a tough, tough thing to do uh, for certain markets. When you started in around 2015, did you think that when we hit 2021, that over 15,000 dealerships would be using ACV auctions? <laughs> I mean, we had, we, we hoped, you know, it, it, we were obviously very optimistic going in, uh, which is, you know, it's good to kind of be somewhat foolish um, <laughs> as, as you're going in and, and, you know, a little overconfident. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the where the company's got to, I mean, it's, it, it is a bit surreal kind of looking back, you know, we knew, we knew the opportunity was there. You know, the question was just, you know, are we going to be the ones that are able to to make it happen? You know, we felt the shift to digital, it's going to happen at some point. Obviously, with COVID, it, that kind of moved the industry for, forward, you know, three to five years. Um, 
but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy as you get going and, uh, you know, further and further. And I think, you know, I, I definitely credit our investors for this as well. Um, you know, some of the big names like Bessemer and, and Bain and, and, and people like that is that it's constantly like, you know, this could be so big. We need to keep growing. We got to go faster. We got to do all of these things. And they were the ones that could really see how big this could become. And it, it kind of takes a while when you're like, oh my gosh, how are we going to go from here to there in this amount of time? And we would, and then we would do it. And we're like, oh my God, we're here. Oh, okay, great. And then they're like, great, here's the next hill to climb, you know? So I, I think it is good having people who have seen companies at a large scale and can, you know, think big, right? And I think that's really the biggest piece is, um, you know, how can you think big and, and, and not be constrained with just the size of a company that you're familiar with or, um, you know, things like that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a new kind of mentality and way of thinking about it is just, you know, look at the full opportunity, look at, you know, with different switches to digital, you know, it could create a totally different paradigm. So it's not even just, you know, brick and mortar versus digital, the digital piece unlocks so many other aspects of it that, um, you know, that you just wouldn't have thought of. And it just kind of helps as you're growing this company. And, and those are the ways, those are the little triggers uh, that, that can really, you know, help you grow and, and pop even faster than you thought. And then to go back to what you said early in the conversation, you know, this is the main lesson that we need to be teaching more entrepreneurs. You had to realize right in the beginning that you could do something that makes money. We, when we started our watch company, our business model is very, very simple. We manufacture watches and we sell them at a profit. And, you know, we didn't get lost. Like you and I have seen literally probably over a thousand decks each from entrepreneurs in our lives. And how many times do we get to the end of a deck and we're like, it's cool, but how is this making money? <laughs> Uh, probably 900 and something. (laughs) Exactly. And that's just the thing. I mean, it doesn't have to be fancy. You know, I know. So we've got a new watch coming out, which of course I'm going to show you privately. We've got a new watch coming out in a couple of weeks. I know exactly down to the cent what our costs are. I know exactly down to the cent what we're going to sell it for. When we sell each watch, we're going to make money. That's very, very simple. And if we sell tons of them, we'll make a lot of money. And if we sell just a few, we'll make a little bit of money. But we knew that from the beginning. And if we don't invest a cent into any advertising, into any social media, it doesn't change the fact that with each good sold, it comes at a profit. Now, again, we're a teeny little business. We're like a mom and pop watch shop, two guys who love watches, right? But that's the kind of business that I think people should be building. The kind of business where you're like, I understand the cars. I understand what their needs are. Let's do something. And every transaction, there's something in it for us. That's what people should be building. Yeah, and I think it comes down to, yeah, what is the business model? What are your unit economics? The, the caveat being, you know, if you are in, you know, growth mode, hyper growth mode, whatever you want to call it, and you are bringing on venture capital, a lot of it, you know, the way you think about it, because you will be losing money, um, which is, you know, you raise the money to be able to put it to work and grow faster. But at the same time, you want to be improving your, you know, your unit economics and, making those better and so the spend is more of how do we get more of the market share how do we you know build the you know the best team how do we do you know build new technologies and products and and then you 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 really have to time it so all right at what point after we've kind of gone and saturated the market or you know 
done enough of these things that the unit economics gets so much better and you're so much more efficient that now you're you're hitting that break even and profitable stage, right? And so that that's but I, I think you know all of the underlying um, you know principles are the same. Uh, it's a little different on the venture growth side, just in terms of you know you are technically <laughs> technically losing money, but um, you know with that longer term goal of of growth and when do we hit that cash for up cash flow break even point in profit exactly. Point. Totally. So listen, in the last couple of minutes, we're going to make a hard right. So here's the first thing. The Super Bowl odds are out for next year. And where do you think Buffalo is in their, in what people think they're going to do in the Super Bowl? Are they number one, number five, number 20? I'll put them at three. You're right. They're three. They're tied for Ooh. three with Tampa Bay. Okay. But here's the thing. They're behind Kansas City and Green Bay. Explain to me how Buffalo is behind Green Bay, a talented team where there's such bad blood between their potential Hall of Fame quarterback and the team right now, they're ahead of the Bills, where the Bills are about to lock in one of the greatest young quarterbacks in history pretty much forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, I, I like it that way, to be honest with you, as a suffering uh, Buffalo sports fan. I, I don't want us to get too far ahead. So, you know, I like being the underdog, you know, be the disrespected underdog that, you know, isn't getting the love and, let everyone keep the chip on their shoulder and keep working hard. So, you know, I always get too nervous, you know, the bills are up at, you know, by too much or they're a favorite going to a game. That's when I, that's when I get real nervous, but that's just uh, 30 something years of, uh, you know, Buffalo sports that'll do it to you. And we're going to end the podcast with a couple of pieces of Buffalo trivia. I thought about this because I did some El Paso trivia with one of my other guests <laughs> and he got them all right. I'm only going to give you a couple. I think you're going to get them. So okay. the bills owner, Ralph Wilson, originally wanted his AFL team to be located in another city, not in Buffalo. Where did you want it to be? Miami. Exactly. Well, that's so good. I wouldn't have got that. That's so good. <laughs> I like that a lot. Now, is it true or is it not true that in 1842, I'm not going to trick you on the date, so the date's right, okay? But in 1842, when grain elevators were invented, was it a Buffalo resident who did that? I know, I know it was invented in Buffalo. The, the elevator was invented. Then you got it right. Then yes. you got it right. And here's one other thing. I'm not going to give this as a quiz question, but I didn't know this. I love Frank Lloyd Wright. And I've seen Frank Lloyd Wright buildings in Buffalo. But did you know that Chicago is the only city in the country that has more Frank, Light, Frank Lloyd Wright buildings than Buffalo? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I follow some of the stuff. So I do see... I, I do see a bunch of it, but yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting uh, history with him and the Larkin, uh, the Larkin company back in the day. Well, Dan, when all of this um, current plague that we're still toiling under is all said and done, I'm coming down to Buffalo, as I said with one of my uh, earlier podcast guests from the first season, who's from Niagara Falls, we dispelled the myth that there's no good chicken wings in Buffalo, which is a myth, <laughs> although there's definitely overrated chicken wings in Buffalo. So I'm coming down. We're going to get some wings when all of this is said and done. Sound good? Sounds great. And maybe we'll, uh, you know, go watch Josh Allen win a couple games, too. That sounds good to me. Dan, have a great rest of the week. And thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, have a great one.